Hello, and welcome to Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter 28. By the fall of 1938, when Walt was planning the new studio, the desultory, blissful, post-Snow White respite had ended, and he was back at Hyperion piloting Snow White's follow-up, Bambi. He had been working on the project in fits and starts since early 1935 when he met with producer-director Sidney Franklin, who held the rights and was eager to get the film into production. Preoccupied with Snow White, Walt had kept stalling and Franklin had kept pressing, even notifying the Disneys that he was considering an offer for the material from MGM, the studio to which Franklin was under contract, though Roy thought he was bluffing just to get the project moving. By the spring of 1937, it had gotten moving, and Bianca Majoli, who had been a classmate of Walt at McKinley High School in Chicago before petitioning him for a job and landing one in the story department, submitted a synopsis, which she continued to refine throughout the summer. In August, with Snow White sprinting to its finish, Walt met with Larry Morey and Dorothy Ann Blink, who were attempting to shape Majoli's synopsis into a script, and by month's end, he had begun to organize the staff, though he was still loath to pull anyone off of Snow White until it was completed. When Walt convened the first formal story conference for Bambi on September 4th and Dave Hand announced the schedule, animation to begin on December 1st with the release set for a year later, it was immediately clear that things were going to be very different from how they had been on Snow White, where the story had undergone not months but years of intense scrutiny. Walt was different too. The staff looked hopefully to Walt, Frank Frank Thomas, and Ollie Johnston would later write, But he was not giving his usual strong leadership this time. The storyman reported that he seemed troubled by the whole idea of the picture and was not sure which way to go. Part of the problem was that Walt knew Franklin had been trying to lick the script for years without success. What Walt admitted that he liked in Felix Salton's novel, a series of incidents rather than a narrative, were the possibilities with animals and not with doing the book the way it was. And part of the problem was that Walt was in a hurry to take advantage of the momentum created by Snow White. When Larry Morey suggested that they first work out the scene of Bambi and his mother walking through the woods, the sort of thing they did with the scene in which the dwarfs discover Snow White when they started Snow White, Walt countered that they should begin casting voices at the same time. Let us start moving on this thing and not drag it out too long, he advised. He didn't want to waste time by designing the characters now. He said they should settle on the characters, write business for them, and construct the first half of the movie, then record the dialogue and music and make sketches afterward. If we had on a track the music, the action, the dialogue, and the songs for your first 4,000 feet, he told the staff, you should be able to visualize it without the sketches. He even recommended that Lusk use the voices they recorded for inspiration to draw model sheets of the characters, but he warned it is wisest to build through a few characters. In short, he was working almost entirely from the oral to the visual, and he was trying to do it quickly. And the staff did work fast. Within two weeks of the story conference, Percy Pierce, who was acting as the producer, constructed a rough continuity for the first section of the film, from Bambi's birth to his first walk in the woods. Scenes had been parceled out to various members of the story department, and voices had been recorded. A month after that, the story crew was meeting with Franklin and picking his brain. 
Franklin had latched onto the idea of a comical hare throughout the film, who throughout the film tries to tell Bambi a story but keeps getting harassed by a fox before he can finish. Finally, he's shot by a hunter, and as he attempts one last time to finish his story before expiring, he gasps, it wasn't a very funny story anyway, there was no point to it. The scene never made it into the final script, but it did have an effect. According to Johnston and Thomas, it showed us a new dimension that was possible for animation, real drama with the communication of an idea that would move the audience. From his live-action experience, Franklin was showing them how to move beyond Snow White into even more poignant and dramatic realms. Franklin seemed to spark Walt, too. When they met for an extended story session on December 15th, a week before the Snow White premiere, Walt was suddenly engaged with the material again, describing an opening montage of winter turning to spring virtually shot by shot, just as he had done on Snow White and doing the same on a scene after a devastating forest fire. Franklin was impressed by Walt's sensitivity to the treatment. You hit the story with us, he told Walt. This is Bambi. There is no gag that stands out above Bambi himself. He is part of everything. But in some ways, Franklin's enthusiasm simply underscored Walt's problems with Bambi. It required too much sensitivity, too delicate at hand. A hand. It wasn't ready, and the studio wasn't ready for it. The very day of his meeting with Franklin, Walt announced to the press that he would be postponing the film and slotting Pinocchio in its place. Pinocchio was supposed to be easier, and in any case, at the same time he was wrestling with Bambi, and partly because of his wariness about that project, Walt had been hurtling forward with it that fall. Animator Norm Ferguson claimed that he was the one who had given Walt a translation of Italian Carlo Collodi's famous novel about the adventures of an impertinent puppet that turns into a real boy, and that after reading it, Walt was just busting his guts with enthusiasm. Presumably thinking of it for his third feature, he instructed Lessing to secure the rights that, that September. By fall, he had made the deal and assigned Majoli to synopsize the book, though Walt thought her outline was too faithful to the original text. I think the thing to do is to take the situations in the book and to try to build the story around the ones that we can do something with and not feel bound to the book, Walt advised a story meeting before sending off the staff to work on individual sequences. At the same time, the at the time the storymen assumed they would have months to work things through. They didn't. One day, Walt walked into the music room, announced that Bambi was being postponed, and assigned Sharpstein to the supervising producer, and Jack Kinney, the animation director of its replacement, Pinocchio. Now speed was suddenly of the essence. As Kinney told it, crank it out was the word, so we did. That winter, in hopes of releasing Pinocchio the following December, Walt was meeting with the story crew for hours at a stretch, often sounding like the Walt Disney of the Snow White story sessions, visualizing scenes, defining characters, performing business, and plussing gags. Usually, the group gathered in projection room number four, then Kinney or Webb Smith or another storyman, Otto Englander or Walt himself, would begin reading the continuity, triggering an almost Talmudic disqui disquisition on each story point, each line, each gag, just as they had done on Snow White. And as on Snow White, as they did so, Walt would keep...
revisiting scenes, repeating lines or bits of business again and again and again, internalizing the film since he was the only one at the studio, as F. Scott Fitzgerald said in The Last Tycoon of the Rare Hollywood Executive, who was able to keep the whole equation of pictures in his head. Roy E. Disney, Roy's young son, even remembered being bedridden with the chicken box when with the chicken pox when Walt and Lillian visited his parents. Walt came in to see him, then sat on the edge of the bed and told the story of Pinocchio as he used to tell used to tell the story of Snow White. But as much as it may have seemed like Snow White, the schedule made it different. Walt needed to get the story going. There was no time for the months and months of refinements, no time to agonize over every frame. Even before a scene was fully conceptualized, he wanted it sent to the gag men, and as soon as an individual sequence seemed ready for animation, he wanted it sent to the animators, whether the rest of the film had been worked out or not. And even as they pored over the script, given the new time pressures, the process was far more catch-as-catch-can than on Snow White. Scenes were rapidly worked out and then just as rapidly discarded. Sketch artist Bill Pete remembered the staff being summoned to a Pinocchio meeting and the animators carrying what he estimated to be at least 70 storyboards as they huddled around Walt's armchair in projection room number four. Walt's mood, which had been lighthearted at the, as the morning session began, gradually darkened. There's too much stuff here, he barked, and every so often he would, as Pete recalled it, get up and rip a whole row of sketches off the board, summarily shortening the film. The only calm in the storm was when they came to the character of Honest John Foulfellow, a conniving fox who waylays Pinocchio, and Walt transformed himself into the villain to act out the scene. By the time the two-day session ended, Walt had eliminated half the boards, though as he left, he turned to us with a satisfied smile and said that was a hell of a good session, to which Pete would write, it left me wondering what a bad one would be like. <laughs> oh, that's funny. The bad sessions were to come. From January through June, while the animators worked simultaneously on sequences, Walt continued to meet with the story crew and sketch artists, working through the script more or less chronologically, rather than conquering the key scenes first as he had done on Snow White, puppet maker Geppetto carving Pinocchio and then realizing his new marionette could move, but avoiding the sentimentality of the scene because Walt felt there had been too much sentimentality in Snow White, Pinocchio getting waylaid by Honest John, Pinocchio getting sent to Booby Land, later changed to Pleasure Island, where he is allowed to indulge his desires and is turned into a donkey as a result, his escape from Booby Land and his attempt to rescue Geppetto, who has been swallowed by Monstro the Whale. Occasionally, Walt would recite scenes in minute detail, cut by cut. Other times, he would establish the general motive and the meaning of the scene and leave the storyman to write the lines, then return to fine-tune them. As always, his focus was less on the narrative than on the emotion and psychology of the scene. I want to feel it before we start to work on it, he said of Pinocchio's search for Geppetto. As they worked, there was the presumption that this was a story Walt did feel. After his impasse on Bambi, he had decided to forge ahead on Pinocchio because, as one story man put it, Pinocchio was a picture Walt knew how to make, while Bambi still baffled him. The staff felt the same way. Emboldened by the success of Snow White, despite the expectations it imposed, they proceeded on Pinocchio with assurance. 
We were pretty cocky coming off of Snow White, Ward Kimball later admitted. We thought we could just sit down and do another feature, and we plunged into it. In fact, Walt confidently predicted that the studio would be turning out a new feature every six months. But even as Walt tried to expedite the production of Pinocchio, he began encountering problems. Some were minor, having to recast the voices of Pinocchio and Geppetto or streamline scenes that moved too slowly in Walt's estimation. Others, however, proved as intractable as those on Bambi. Ken Anderson felt there was a problem from the outset, a problem of spirit. Ben Sharpstein had been the one encouraging Walt to push Pinocchio when Bambi was delayed, and because Sharpstein rather than Walt assumed the role of point man to many of the staff, Anderson felt it became more of a technical achievement than one of the heart, as Snow White so obviously was. Sharpstein had his own analysis of why Pinocchio didn't run smoothly. There were too many directors working simultaneously without the strong coordinating hand of Walt that had impelled Snow White. Instead, Sharpstein was responsible for supervising the units, and Walt was now beckoned only if there was a serious problem or if the units needed a boost. The result was a kind of chaos. Walt had another perspective. He complained that in trying to keep his ever-growing staff engaged once Bambi had been postponed, he rushed Pinocchio into production without adequate planning lest the animators sit idle. We've tried to take care of the whole plant in Pinocchio, and there's where we got into trouble, he told a meeting of the Bambi crew some months later. Not having a thing prepared, trying to build a story before we ever knew it. Another time, he complained, we went through Pinocchio and didn't plan any music to speak of at all. We didn't plan our music and dialogue in between. The major drawback to the lack of preparation was the failure to take fully the character of Pinocchio to tackle fully the character of Pinocchio. As Walt put it bluntly at the outset, one difficulty in Pinocchio is that people know the story, but they don't like the character, who in the book is often cruel. Excuse me. It was a sign of his dissatisfaction with the character that Walt suggested they enlarge the role of the Blue Fairy and have her appear in different guises, including that of a blue cricket to help guide Pinocchio and keep him on a righteous path. But that was only an expedient. Walt clearly had no handle on Pinocchio, describing him at one point as fresh, like ventriloquist Edgar Bergen's wisecracking dummy Charlie McCarthy, or lusty like Harpo Marx, grabbing for the grabbing for the fairy whenever she appears. He wasn't even sure whether Pinocchio should act like a puppet or a small boy, and whether he should appear wooden or flexible. When Frank Thomas, Milt Call, and Ollie Johnston took the former tack and animated 150 feet of the puppet early that February, Walt was displeased. As the story goes, including the official studio record, shortly after seeing Thomas's animation, Walt decided to put Pinocchio on hiatus from February through September while the staff reworked the script. In fact, Walt kept working on, revising, and even sweatboxing scenes right through July, but he knew he had hit a wall. Ham Luss claimed that after looking at the storyboards of a scene in which Pinocchio terrorizes Geppetto's cat Figaro, he suggested to Walt that the audience would lose sympathy for Pinocchio unless the puppet had some way to discern right from wrong. That comment, Lusk said, Lusk said was the one that triggered Walt to begin thinking about reconceptualizing the film. 
As Ward Kimball told it, after six or eight months, Walt looked at it and he says it's not working right. So he threw it out and everybody had to start all over again. This time, he fastened on a character who had had only a minor role in Collodi's novel, a cricket whom Pinocchio stomps to death. In a revised synopsis that June, a little cricket who is singing on the hearth makes his first appearance. This time, however, the fairy appoints him as Pinocchio's conscience. Now the storyman had to rewrite the entire script to incorporate the cricket. As Walt later explained it, we said, here's a guy we... Here's a guy we've got to take all the way through this thing, so we worked him back into all the sections. Perhaps the real problem with Pinocchio, and with Bambi for that matter, and the primary reason that Walt wasn't able to find solutions to the dilemmas they posed as he had on Snow White, was that he was overextended, which was why he had to delegate authority to Hand and Sharpstein. Not only was he revising the scripts of Bambi and Pinocchio, he was sweatboxing scenes, designing the new studio, supervising the shorts production, the shorts production, and launching yet another film, his most ambitious yet, tentatively titled The Concert Feature, which in Walt's original plan was to have been released after Bambi and Pinocchio. Indeed, in a single typical day in February, Walt was discussing a scene in which Pinocchio learns to pray, listening to recordings for the concert feature, watching live action that had been shot for Pinocchio, and attending a story meeting on the shorts. Added to all these chores was Walt's rededication to his family, though the family was always sacrificed when the studio called. Even before Bambi and Pinocchio had been temporarily shelved, the concert feature had loomed large in Walt's consciousness. In a way, it was a fulfillment. Since the skeleton dance, Walt had harbored the dream of making silly symphonies in which, as he told an interviewer, sheer fantasy unfolds to a musical pattern without being restricted by the illusion of reality. In short, abstract films. With his obligations on Snow White, he hadn't had the time to implement this idea until sometime probably in the summer of 1937, when he was dining alone at Chasen's restaurant in Los Angeles, spotted the Leonine Polish-born symphony conductor Leopold Stokowski, who was also dining alone, and invited him to his table. Walt already knew Stokowski, one of the most recognizable figures of high culture, with his long, wild hair and his tabloid romances. He had visited the Disney studio in 1934 and maintained an occasional correspondence with Walt. As Stokowski later told it, over dinner that night, Walt discussed a project he was considering, a musical short of Paul Dukas' symphonic scherzo, La Prentice Sorcière, or the... La Prentice Sorcier, or the Sorcerer's Apprentice, about a powerful wizard in whose absence a curious pupil uses the wizard's magical hat and scepter with unfortunate results. By one account, Stokowski offered to conduct the score for nothing. In another, he began expatiating on a dream of his own, to make an animated feature set to classical music. Either way, a collaboration began. With Snow White winding down at the time, the Sorcerer's Apprentice seemed to strike a nerve with Walt. If the former was the story of Walt's youth, the latter was the story of his new power and his vexed relationship to it. Bill Titlow would draw the Sorcerer with Walt's own famously cocked eyebrow and had named him Yen Sid, Disney, backward to make the connection between the Sorcerer's magic omnipotence and Walt's. 
In the animation universe, Walt Disney did control the elements as Yen Sid did in the cartoon. He was the master, the only one with the whole equation in his head, while his minions were the apprentices, helpless without him. But another possible interpretation may have been in Walt's own mind as he awaited the reception to Snow White, that he was not the sorcerer but was himself the hapless apprentice who dons the sorcerer's hat and summons the elements only to discover that they overwhelm him. As a continuity for the sorcerer's apprentice described it, it is the picture of the typical little man and what he would like to do once given complete control of the earth and its elements. This turned the sorcerer's apprentice into a portent for the studio. With war brewing in Europe and Asia, it may have also turned it into a portent for the world generally. Once Snow White was completed, Walt must have sensed that the studio no longer served Walt Disney. Rather, Walt Disney increasingly served the studio, unable to manage the forces that he had unleashed. In, in effect, the cartoon, which was itself a form of hubris, might be seen as Walt's own nightmare in which he is defeated by his own hubris. But if Walt was using the Sorcerer's Apprentice to express his own concerns, he had another more prosaic incentive for making the short, his dedication to one of his most stalwart supporters. Actress Helen Hayes recalled visiting the studio in 1937 and Walt showing her a new Mickey Mouse cartoon. Of course, you know, Donald is the big thing now, Walt told her, but it won't last. Mickey is forever. He'll have his moments in the shade, but he'll always come out in the bright lights again. In truth, if anything, the shade had grown even darker for Mickey Mouse. The early Mickey Mouse had been, as John Updike described him, America as it feels to itself, plucky, put-upon, inventive, resilient, good-natured, game. But as he had become increasingly domesticated, he had also become increasingly a cipher. Excuse me. Our dilemma became one of trying to find new logical material for Mickey, more sophisticated material, if you will. Ward Kimball reflected. As we got more personality and character into the other cartoons, it became more and more difficult to cope with Mickey. Mickey was really an abstraction. He wasn't based on anything that was remotely real. Animator Frizz Frilling agreed. Mickey Mouse was a nothing, really. After the novelty of animation was over, there was nothing left but a black and white drawing moving around. You really don't associate yourself with that character at all. Directors and animators began referring to him as a Boy Scout in reference to his lack of spikiness, his blandness. Walt was not willing to surrender Mickey so easily. He asked Jack Kinney to develop Mickey narratively into something more than a supporting player to Donald Duck, and he charged Fred Moore and Ward Kimball, by one account Moore acted on his own initiative, with redesigning Mickey to make him look more appealing, which was Moore's stock in trade. As Thomas and Johnston reported it, Walt watched footage of Moore's newly redesigned Mickey in the sweatbox, demanding that it be run repeatedly until he finally paused, turned to Moore, and said, Now that's the way I want Mickey to be drawn from now on. Moore had made Mickey softer. Where the mouse had previously been constructed as a series of circles, which made him easy to draw, Moore now suggested that the body is to be drawn as somewhat of a pear shape, fairly short, and that the and plump so that Mickey had more curve and less rigidity. There's a note there. Though Ub Iwerks had described the original Mickey as pear-shaped, he was not entirely accurate. Mickey was circular in part because a circular construction made him easy to draw. Sometimes the artists would simply take quarters and trace them for the basic components. 
Okay. He also further enlarged the head and shrank the body. Mickey is cuter when drawn with small shoulders with a suggestion of stomach and fanny, and I like him pigeon-toed, he told an action analysis class. Mickey gained mass and weight, counter-movements, counter-thrusts, in Kimball's words. His cheeks began to move with his mouth, and Kimball himself converted Mickey's eyes from large and expressive black pupils to ovals surrounding pupils. All of these changes made Mickey even more childlike and less rodent-like, which had always been the direction of his evolution anyway. Though children's heads obviously become smaller in relation to their bodies as they grow, evolutionary biologist Stephen J. Gold observed that Mickey had traveled this onto ontogenetic pathway in reverse. The animators infantilized his appearance by enlarging his head, lowering his pants line and covering his legs to shorten them, sticking his snout, oh, thickening his snout and moving his ears back on his head to make the forehead larger and more rounded. This new Mickey was indisputably cuter, as Moore had said, than the old Mickey, and cute seemed to be the order of the day. I think people think of Mickey as a cute character, Walt would tell a story meeting after the redesign. He is a cute character, and he should be more likable in everything he does. But in making him cuter and more of a child, the animators had removed the last rem remnants of his rude energy. His vitality, his alertness, his bug-eyed cartoon readiness for adventure, in Updike's words, the old Chaplin-esque devilry was completely expunged. In truth, Chaplin had lost most of his devilry, too. If he became more expressive, he had less to be expressive about. As Updike wrote, referring specifically to Mickey's new eyes, but equally applicable to the entire redesign, it made him less abstract, less iconic, more merely cute and dwarfish. Though he had approved the redesign, Walt understood that it had not solved the Mickey problem. Years later, he would say of Mickey's demise, we got tired and we had new characters to play with. Mickey needed something more to survive. He needed a vehicle. Ben Sharpstein denied that Walt had decided to make the sorcerer's apprentice because he thought it was a way to rehabilitate Mickey, saying that Dopey had been considered initially. Still, apparently very early in the process, storyman Chester S. Cobb had been assigned to investigate possibilities for the film and concluded it would be difficult to invent an interesting apprentice. A kid wouldn't be comic enough. But, Cobb went on, Mickey or the Goof, referring to a subsidiary character in a good imaginative atmosphere, would have a lot more audience value as the apprentice than any symphony-type character we might invent. Stokowski wasn't persuaded. What would you think of creating an entirely new personality for this film instead of Mickey, he wrote Walt in November 1937, a personality which could represent you and me. In other words, someone that would represent in the mind and heart of everyone seeing the film their own personality so that they would enter into all the drama and emotional changes of the film in a most intense manner. It was one of the few times Walt disregarded a Stokowski suggestion. Walt did think of Mickey Mouse as you and me, and in a last-ditch rescue mission, he had decided that the Sorcerer's Apprentice would be his alter ego. Whatever appeal the Sorcerer's Apprentice held for him, Walt, usually so painstakingly deliber deliberate, moved with uncharacteristic haste, most likely because he needed something to advance. 
In July 1937, he had secured the rights to the music, and by late August, storyman Otto Englander had submitted an outline, with Wald insisting that we should try to follow out the idea of the music as much as possible, and not change it any more than necessary. Once Stokowski had entered the picture, Walt was especially energized, all steamed up, as he put it in a letter to Gregory Dixon, an RKO publicity executive who had happened to meet Stokowski on a train and discuss the project with him. We would all like very much to have the opportunity of working with him on this picture and, if possible, to get, it, to get started on it immediately, Walt continued, offering to put the finest men in the plant, from color men down to animators, on the sorcerer. He closed, I am greatly enthused over the idea and believe that the union of Stokowski and his music, together with the best of our medium, would be the means of a great success and should lead to a new style of motion picture presentation. He asked Dixon again to see if he could convince Stokowski to begin work on the film as soon as possible. The next week, Stokowski wrote, Walt, equally excited, you have no more enthusiastic admirer in the world than I am, and saying he would be and saying he would be making a preliminary recording of the score in a few days. While Stokowski made his recordings in Philadelphia, where he led the Philadelphia Orchestra, Walt hurried the story, cr story crew through a treatment and began soliciting suggestions from the staff, though he advised them to avoid slapstick gags. I have never been more enthused over anything in my life, Walt wrote Stokowski in mid-November, informing him that while anxiously awaiting your arrival to get the wheels of production turning, we are preparing a story, which we hope will meet with your approval. Stokowski arrived in Los Angeles on January 2, 1938, with great fanfare. Walt was not above suggesting that Dixon exploit Stokowski's recent divorce and reputed romance with actress Greta Garbo for, pu for publicity, to approve the story and record the final score. The Hyperion soundstage was too small for the 85 musicians whom Stokowski had personally selected, so Walt rented the Selznick studio, and at midnight on Sunday, January 9th, Stokowski conducted Dukas's score. He chose nighttime, he said, because the musicians had to drink coffee to stay awake, which he felt made them more alert. The conductor was so galvanic that the entire session, recorded at Stokowski's insistence on six separate tracks, lasted only three hours. As one observer recalled, when it was over, Stokowski stepped down from the podium drenched in perspiration. It took two bath towels to dry him. But the collaboration only began there. Stokowski had arrived in Los Angeles armed with what one associate would later call a sizable portion of his repertory, and he was, and he was apparently lobbying Walt to go beyond Apprentice. Within weeks of the recording session, no doubt as a result of the discussions that Walt and Stokowski held through the end of January, Walt came to a decision. The Sorcerer's Apprentice would now be just one segment of a feature that would set animation to classical music, just as Stokowski had allegedly described his vision to Walt at Chasen's. Again, Walt moved quickly, perhaps fearing that Stokowski's passion might ebb. By February, the studio had canceled Stokowski's apprentice contract, which called for 10% of the gross, and drafted a new contract paying him $125,000 to conduct the score for and appear in the new concert feature. 
exactly why Walt had moved so rapidly on a new feature when he already had Bambi and Pinocchio in production and was doing preliminary work on Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland may not have been readily apparent to those at the studio. Sharpstein would say that it was a matter of economic expediency. The Sorcerer's Apprentice was simply too long and too expensive to be either theatrically or financially viable as a short, and Stokowski's compilation feature gave him a way out. Sharpstein, Sharpstein may have been right that economics were a consideration. Walt said that he needed to make another challenging feature, or his animators might get bored and restless and decide to leave, but it hardly seemed the major one. Walt had always wanted to do more poetic, musically inclined shorts, and throughout 1935, 1936, and 1937, he kept returning to an idea for a silly symphony he called Flower Ballet, for which he explicitly argued against a tight story in favor of something tonal. Even with Snow White in high gear, Walt couldn't seem to let it go. His growing animus toward conventional narrative and his predilection for this kind of animation was another example of Walt's ongoing need for a challenge, his need to make sure that he wasn't stagnating and was still the very best, his need to enlarge his creative world and fend off incursions from pretenders to his throne. Excuse me. I can't get into a rut or let my boys get into ruts, he would tell a reporter. If we quit growing mentally and artistically, we will begin to die. During the preparation for the concert feature, Walt would sound this idea again and again, just as he had throughout his career. They need to grow. They need to outdo themselves. They need to keep plussing. Asked by one story man if Walt felt they were taking full advantage of the cartoon medium, he reposted, This is not the cartoon medium. It should not be limited to cartoons. We have worlds to conquer here. We've got more in this medium than making people laugh. The gags that had been so integral to his shorts, the gags around which the entire studio had once seemed to orbit, now infuriated him. It's a continual fight around this place to get away from slapping somebody on the fanny or having somebody swallow something, he complained to his staff. It's going to take time to get ourselves up to the point where we can really get some humor in our stuff rather than just belly laughs and get beauty in it rather than just a flashy postcard. Another time, speaking of the concert feature, he exhorted, we're not making an ordinary cartoon, and I feel that we've got the wrong slant on this stuff. Then bluntly added that, bluntly added what would have been heresy even a few years earlier. I don't believe in this gag stuff. He was aspiring to something much higher than gags, much higher even than the sentimental fantasy of Snow White and Pinocchio or the realism of Bambi. In extending his hand to Walt, Stokowski, who carefully cultivated the romantic image of a long-haired artiste for popular consumption, was trying to forge a union between the classical and the mass as a way of popularizing not only classical music, but also, and not incidentally, himself. Walt was working for the same union, only from the other side. This time, he was explicitly bidding to join forces with high art and pry the cartoon from its origins in popular culture, where he felt it was doomed to be crude and juvenile. Walt would have never called himself an artist. He was too skeptical of culture and too plain-spoken for that. But he did want to make art, if only because that was the natural evolution for him, and the concert feature was, he thought certifiably, art. 
They're worried about the highbrow angle, Walt groused at a story meeting after having lunch with RKO counsel Neil Spitz. The only thing I'm worried about is that it might be a little too lowbrow. If you put dopey in it, they would say... If you put dopey in it, they would say swell. Like Stokowski, Walt seemed to take pride in serving as the conduit between the classical composers and his unaffected American audience. Classical music, he thought, had been had been made to seem rarefied and inaccessible. In the concert feature, he and Stokowski would demystify the music by visualizing it. I wouldn't worry a damn bit about the, stiff, about the stiff shirts that are supposed to be the ones that this music is created for, Walt told his story men at one session, recalling a recent visit to the opera. There's a great mass of people who would appreciate this music if they didn't have to sit through stuff like that, like the opera. They want excitement. At another meeting, discussing his reasons for doing the concert feature, he cited Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, one of the pieces he was considering. There are things in that music that the general public will not understand until they see the things on the screen representing that music, he said, taking the view that the music had a visual analog. Then they will feel the depth in the music. Our object is to reach the very people who have walked out on this Toccata and Fugue because they didn't understand it. I'm one of those people, but when I understand it, I like it. For Walt, it was once again a mission much more than a commercial much more than a commercial venture, and he would not allow it to be compromised by commercial considerations. When Roy asked during a discussion of possible scores why they couldn't select some music that just the ordinary guy like me can like can like, Walt flashed him an icy stare and ordered him out of the room, telling him, Go back down and keep the books. The importance of the piece was educating the audience and expanding the medium. Even if the thing's a flop, he told his staff, will have gained a thorough appreciation of what can be done with music. But as enthused as he was over as he was over the concert feature, and it seemed to re-energize him after the enervating difficulties on Bambi and Pinocchio, he was proceeding cautiously again once the Sorcerer's Apprentice was recorded and Stokowski had left the studio to resume his duties with the orchestra. I'm up to my neck in Pinocchio, Walt wrote the music critic Deems Taylor, whom he was consulting on the new project, and with Bambi just getting started and the new studio underway, I do not believe I'm going to have much time to devote to the musical feature that I discussed with you while in New York. Indeed, no sooner had Walt returned from his trip east to receive his honorary degrees than he plunged back into the stalled features, though if he remained the governing spirit, reviewing the scripts and approving the roughs, he was no longer the presiding spirit. That October, with Hyperion unable to accommodate physically all the production staffs working simultaneously, the Bambi crew had been shuffled first across the street and then to a rented warren of tiny rooms in a building on Seward Street in Hollywood where Harmon Ising had had their offices. It was, Mark Davis remembered, enjoying the incongruity across the street from a pornographic film studio. According, according to Thomas and Johnston, According to Thomas and Johnston, the staff was initially resentful at being furloughed. It removed them from the excitement of the studio. But in time, they realized they had an advantage in not being at Hyperion. No one would be bothering them. Mark Davis guessed Walt appeared there maybe only three, four, or five times. Instead, pipe-sucking Percy Pierce conducted the story sessions and guided the production, very much in the spirit of Walt, acting out scenes and elaborating the continuity with his story crew. Significantly, Walt did not attend any of these sessions. 
For a studio now in desperate need of a new feature, progress was agonizingly incremental. Frank Churchill, who had written the music for Snow White, had been signed to compose the score for Bambi, though he was a melancholic and unreliable alcoholic, and storyman Larry Morey was, as Gunther Lessing put it, riding herd on him. The studio was also importing animals for the animators to study, while sending other animators to reserves to observe deer. At the same time, a young Chinese-born artist named Tai Wong, who had been hired as an in-betweener on Pinocchio, had on his own initiative submitted drawings for Bambi that, with Walt's approval, soon became the basis for the style of the film, such just as Albert Herter's inspirational drawings had set the style for Snow White. Suggestive rather than highly realistic, Wong's design provided a, provided a visual breakthrough for the artists. But even as they moved forward, they were slogging, trapped between the tight, compressed narrative of Snow White and the loose poeticism of the concert feature, between the cartoon exaggerations that they had already mastered and the more painterly abstract effects of Wong that were far more difficult to achieve. Still disappointed, Walt at one point reassigned Ham Lusk to work on shorts while the Bambi script was revised. Meanwhile, the rest of the staff, though happy to be out from under Walt's gaze, was growing discontented. Thomas and Johnston said that they were never confident they, was, they would succeed in capturing the story's emotional power, and they eventually began to wonder whether the film would ever be made at all, a dread intensified by the fact that, as they put it, Walt never came. Now, as the studio was laboring on Bambi, Pinocchio, and the concert feature, a labor that had ended Walt's respite, there came an event that would end the ebullient times for Walt Disney altogether. Ever since they had received the 50th anniversary promise of a new home, Elias and Flora... Elias and Flora Disney had been living in a rented apartment on Commonwealth Street while they and Roy hunted for a suitable residence. They finally found one that September, a brand new home at 4605 Placidia, Placidia in the hidden village section of North Hollywood on a 75 by 125 foot lot whose owner had suddenly died, leaving his widow to dispose of it for $8,300. It had three bedrooms, two baths, a living room, and a double garage, but Roy wrote Walt, more important, it has a good heating system, a central gas heater with forced circulation. The brothers put down $2,300 and spent between $2,500 and $3,000 to furnish the house, and their parents moved in shortly thereafter. But as soon as Elias and Flora moved in, the much-vaunted heating system began to malfunction. We better get this furnace fixed or else some morning we'll wake up and find ourselves dead, Flora was said to have told her housekeeper, Alma Smith. Roy and Walt dispatched a workman from the studio to repair it. On the morning of November 26, 1938, Flora went to the bathroom adjoining her bedroom. When she didn't return, Elias got up to investigate and found her collapsed on the bathroom floor. Feeling overcome himself, he staggered out into the hallway and fainted. Downstairs in the courtyard, Alma Smith was emptying a dustpan of oatmeal that she had spilled when she felt herself getting woozy and realized that something was amiss. She rushed back into the house and raced up the stairs, found Elias on the floor, called a neighbor, and then phoned Roy. Meanwhile, she tried to open the window, but it was stuck. Then she and the neighbor dragged Flora and Elias down the stairs and outside, and the neighbor administered artificial respiration. Elias revived. Flora did not. 
She died of a carbon monoxide poisoning from the defective heater. A lid on the air intake had slipped, recirculating the exhaust into the house. It may have been the most shattering moment of Walt Disney's life. Though he seldom exhibited emotion outside the studio, he was inconsolable. A misery deepened, no doubt, by the fact that she had died in the new home Walt had given her, and by the culpability of his own workmen. A report on the furnace ordered by Roy determined that the installation of the furnace showed either a complete lack of knowledge of the requirements of the furnace or a flagrant disregard of these conditions if they were known. When his parents had arrived in Los Angeles, they had only wanted to see the vast forest lawn cemetery, so Walt had let them off at the gate in the morning and returned later in the day to pick them up. Now, Walt and Roy decided to bury their mother there. You should have seen those two brothers, recalled the Reverend Glenn Pooter, the husband of Herbert's daughter Dorothy and the man who officiated at the funeral. In the following months, they regularly visited their mother's gravesite, but Walt never spoke of her death to anyone thereafter. When years later, Sharon asked him where her grandparents were buried, Walt snapped, I don't want to talk about it. See you again for more next Monday.